0: Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about, and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest.
1: Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor at large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by James Moore, who is a former conservative cabinet minister, and these days is a senior business advisor at the law firm Denton's, a public policy advisor at the public relations firm Edelman, and a corporate director. I've asked James to join me to talk about several topics, including, of course, his views on conservative policy and politics. Thanks so much, James, for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Pleasure to be here. During our time together in Ottawa, I frequently saw you around the cabinet table, and you were among the most consistent and thoughtful conservatives in the room. Yet you had a reputation in the media and, amongst others, as a so-called moderate. What do you attribute that to? What was the source of the disconnect? Well, I don't know if there's necessarily
2: a disconnect. I suppose the the uh, the needle on these things kind of changes over the fullness of time. I mean, when I was first elected in the year 2000, I was 24 years old, didn't have a any kind of profile. I mean, was you know being a member of parliament was my first bit of profile. So you know the national media gallery, who sort of gets the first crack at history of defining people and who they are and what their profile is. Sort of took a measure of me and didn't really know what to make of me. My first, when I was first elected, I was the deputy official opposition foreign affairs critic under Monty Solberg, sitting in the fourth row, splitting my desk half and half, me and a block Québécois MP. So I was super, super, super relevant, as you can tell. And mm-hmm. um, so they didn't, they didn't have anything to make of me, but I, I suppose what a demarcation point in my career i guess was was probably the the vote on same sex marriage over the fullness of time there was a change in leadership in our party of course and and all that but when i when there were 99 conservative members of parliament and there were three of us who voted in favor of same sex marriage myself jim Prentice, and gerald ketty uh, that was a that was a different moment of differentiation between me and the bulk of my colleagues and and i think for a lot of people in the in the media they sort of said oh he's he's okay because he's socially moderate therefore uh, et cetera, et cetera. But I, as I remind people, you know, I was a, I was a staff writer and a student publications editor at the Fraser Institute. I was a, worked in the official opposition for Preston Manning. I was a candidate for Stockwell Day and a cabinet minister for Stephen Harper. So if I'm inadequately
1: conservative, I don't know, I don't know what other check marks need to be checked next to my um, CV, but there you are. <laughs> <laughs> it's fascinating as you say how these narratives emerge and, and develop and oftentimes can diverge from well and any de- any deviation from
2: orthodoxy right and so you know and, and the conservative party we often do it to ourselves right it's like you know you 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 voted against same sex marriage and we saw this in, in recently in the, in the most recent parliament right where you uh, if you're a conservative mp who has a stellar record of standing up in favor of natural resource development and lower taxes and smaller government and and standing for for democracy and and principled foreign policy um however you might have vocally voted and supported the making uh, illegal of forced conversion therapy on children. You know, you stepped away from the orthodoxy, therefore, you're no longer, you're a Sino, you're a conservative in name only. And so we, we see this this approach to things, and it's profoundly toxic, and it's super unhealthy because this is a large and complicated country. We are the second largest country in the world in size, 37th largest in population. We are small p provincial in terms of our, often our identities, our economies, our, our, our sense of belonging within Canada. And, you know, conservatism in a large brokerage party that's continental in size that tries to encapsulate all that is Canadian conservatism. Yeah, you're going to have different you're going to have slightly different flavors of what conservatism means in in Estevan Saskatchewan versus downtown Vancouver versus Twelfthville Quebec. And so that the parties have to have that kind of flexibility, but social media allows people to be so strident and self-righteous in terms of what is acceptable conservatism or not versus finding a way to sort of be be satisfied with people who marginally disagree with you on on s- some of the more challenging issues of our time. Let me take you up on that
1: point. Uh, You've been a consistent critic of the Republican Party's populist term. I'd be interested in your thoughts on how conservatives in Canada can, on one hand, be responsive to the needs, interests, and aspirations of ordinary people across the country, without, on the other hand, succumbing to the kind of lowest common denominator populism that we've seen in the U.S. and elsewhere. What advice do you have for Canadian conservative politicians on this question? Well, another word for populism is, you know, is reflecting
2: public sentiment that isn't being expressed either in sort of consensus media or informed opinion or existing political actors or existing political leadership when you have a swell of popular opinion that doesn't seem to be reflected anywhere and it rises up and says, hey, you're not listening to us. You don't hear what we're saying. We we feel like our voice is not being heard. That's an entirely legitimate aspect of of democratic engagement that makes a lot of sense. What bothers me about, uh, has bothered me in the past anyway, about Donald Trump and his former populism is that it was fake populism and it was based on exacerbating cleavages and divisions in society and and exploiting those, those divisions rather than saying, I hear you, I get you, here's how I want to approach the grievances that you have that are entirely legitimate, that have been ignored for far too long, you, you take it and you dial it to 10 and you weaponize it in a way that is, you know, either I alone can fix it or else the country is broken. And therefore, if I am politically unsuccessful, your issue will never be remedied and you should go ahead and, and break up the family and break up the country. And that kind of, pot that, that that is utterly and completely irresponsible and toxic. And by the way, we see it with Donald Trump, you also see it in some aspects of Canadian politics with Justin Trudeau. And, you know. Election campaigns are about you know ex- accentuating differences, but when it when it comes to fatalism, and it's either me or nothing ever happens on indigenous reconciliation, on climate change, on a competitive economy, either we get elected or Atlantic Canada gets forgotten, or you you name the cohort of of the electorate. Uh, I think that stuff is is profoundly toxic, and it's really dangerous for conservatism. I have a view that when you decouple optimism from conservatism, conservatism always loses. You know the, the short game of aggravating a base to motivate them to come out and vote, but also be so angry and so motivated to come out and vote that they're going to drag their son and daughter who just turned 18 to make sure that they come out and vote too. That, that, that game only works for so long. Uh, I think ultimately people, because often these problems are enormously complicated and they're not going to be satisfied by a group of politicians in the next, you know, eighteen to twenty-four months, these things have to be, you know, fixed in much more complex timelines. And I and I'm I, I do sort of believe in the Ralph Klein school, right? Lower expectations exceed them, lower expectations be reasonable, be pragmatic, be responsible, rather than conflate everything, dial everything up, be fatalistic about your political success, and then you don't get the job done. And then people just, you know, it's it's like, it's suicide, ultimately, for a country, right, where you just, you you put all of your hopes and energies into politics, and expect that politics will solve all the world's problems. That is not proper conservatism. That's not Realism in terms of human beings' human nature and how we organize ourselves collectively, you're putting too much hope and expectation into politics, and we and those of us on the right used to condemn the left for doing that that statism is the solution to everything, and the right seems to play too much of that politics these days and I, and I think it needs to be tempered quite a bit
1: I'll come back to the point of aspiration uh, and an aspirational politics because i I think it's so important. but before I do. It's worth observing that we're speaking as the Conservative Party of Canada is in the throes of a leadership race. I won't ask you about specific candidates, but as a general question, what do you think the party needs to do to, on one hand, sustain its its base of support, and on the other hand, grow beyond its core supporters? Is there, in your view, a tension here? And if so, are there issues or messages that can overcome those tensions? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a natural...
2: Challenge that the Conservative Party uniquely has. I often say that in, in Canadian politics, liberals need to love their leaders. Conservatives need to respect their leaders. Liberals have, generally speaking, this, this sort of romantic notion that they love Pierre Trudeau. They, you know, people who love Jean Chrétien, those who love uh, uh, Paul Martin, really love. Like they need to almost have this uh, messianic, you know, following behind their leaders. Conservatives need to respect our leaders. Nobody really loved Brian Mulroney, but they respected his substance, his style, his charisma. And his, his focus, particularly whether it was trying to get meat or Charlottetown or trying to get free trade or what have you. And you could ag- agree or disagree with those elements. And I did of, of, of his agenda. Uh, people respected Stephen Harper. They didn't necessarily love him, but they respected him and, and, and his intellect and his drive and his, his capacity to deliver um, results for the conservative movement. So. When you go into a conservative leadership race, there's a tension there because the people who who put down their money and join the conservative party, typically, they're not getting involved to sort of hear breathy speeches and, and to be inspired and to go home feeling really good about themselves. People join the conservative party because they want something done. They want something done. They want their business to be able to grow. They want their taxes to be lowered. They want their views to be expressed and not feel like like they're sort of an outlier in society. They they want something done about whether it's equalization or what have you, but they, they want things done. And that's a challenge, but it's also the opportunity. So to answer your question, in my view, successful conservative leadership is not about convincing everybody that you're the best candidate and you're the best person as an individual and to get everybody to love you, but to present them with a substantive, credible plan that checks all checks enough boxes for enough of the conservative coalition and the family to feel like they're part of a platform and a credible policy agenda that'll move us forward. That was the Stephen Harper formula. Now, not all formulas are, are right in all circumstances, but the Stephen Harper formula going back to 2006 was, you know, we had our Five key priorities, right? Cut the GST, healthcare wait time guarantee, the democratic reform, a part of of anti-corruption and the accountability act, tough on crime uh, piece, and so like we we had five key priorities, and they each spoke to an element of the conservative family. If you're a fiscal conservative, guess what? You're not going to get a flat tax. Like I know Stockwell they promised in the past, we're not going to get rid of all you know taxes on investment. We're not going to get completely rid of the capital gains tax. We're going to cut the GST because you and I know we're, if we win, we're probably going to be a minority. But if we could take two points off the GST in, the, in our first mandate as as, as government, that lowers the government share of GDP, puts more money in people's pockets. That's good. You're okay with that? Good. Social conservatives, we are not going to touch abortion. We're not going to go there. It's not going to happen. Not on my watch. It's not on the agenda. However, we just had to vote on same-sex marriage. What if we put before Parliament a vote on whether or not to re-examine the issue of same-sex marriage? You think as somebody who's opposed to same-sex marriage, that that the majority of Canadians really want us to keep talking about this issue. And then if we have a full free vote, then maybe the parliamentary vote will come out differently. That's what you get. We're not going to talk about, board, but that's what your deliverable is for your conscience, your constituency, and your your views of what conservative emphasis should be. That's what you get. People, fiscal conservatives, you're okay with this free vote, free. You got good red Tories. Here's what you're going to get. You're going to get a healthcare wait time guarantee, so that you know we we try to put in markers with with dollars from the federal government transferred to provinces, so that specific healthcare deliverables, whether it's hip replacement or glaucoma or surgeries and, and interventions, that we're going to force provinces to commit to timelines and the delivery. Of these key services to our seniors so if you're a fiscal conservative you're going to get your gst are you okay with this piece you're a social conservative are you and everybody sort of agreed and we had the five key priorities and people would put in the window the one that they wanted to emphasize the most that spoke most to them but nobody disagreed with the other pieces of the of the platform and so Mm -hmm. we built a coalition not around personality not around rhetoric not around temperament not around anger but about a platform that was about delivering something for each of the constituent parts of the conservative family. And everybody was okay with the other parts of the puzzle. And it all kind of came together and worked. So for conservatism, successful leadership to me is being credible and substantive as a leader with a plan to deliver on a platform. And the platform should have those pieces in it that satisfy all the constituent parts of the conservative family that don't offend one versus the other, that we can all say, I, I, as a social moderate, I'm fine with another free vote on same sex marriage because I think I know where it's going to go. I, as a Red Tory, I'm perfectly fine with cutting taxes and cutting the GST two points. Kind of makes a That some, that's, doesn't, I think, blow the hole in the budget. That, that makes sense to me. And so I think that's the way to do it, right? Which is put substance on the table. And a leader that puts credible substance on the table with a plan to achieve it will have the respect of the base. And they want to see progress on these things. And, and I think that's probably the roadmap to go uh, in, in the next one. And by the way, don't have a massive platform with 200 promises, but focus it down on key deliverables that, that have consensus support within conservatives that don't offend any accessible voters on the outside. But in fact, they would, might, might look at those things and think, you know what, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think it's time. Those, those ideas are
1: ideas whose time has come. That's fascinating. In effect, what you're saying is good policy is, is good politics. In that vein, if I may, I'd just like to ask you about some um, big policy questions facing the country uh, in general and conservative politics in particular. You previously served as the, the Minister of Industry. Um, since your time in that role, there's been a, an emerging debate across the Anglosphere about whether uh, an emphasis on free markets has led to an inattention to domestic capacity in strategic or high-growth sectors. The the basic idea is that China's more planned economy may give that country advantages in areas including but not limited to artificial intelligence, and that these uh, sectors or technologies have both commercial and security implications. So I, I guess, what do you think of these arguments? Has there been an overreach on the part of conservatives? Or do you think this renewed interest in industrial policy is mistaken? Well, among the challenges that Canada has,
2: if we even are to consider doing a pivot and to have the government be more proactively engaged and responsive to, like, if the private sector will lead this, the government, in my view, doesn't have the capacity to lead these kind of innovations and growth strategies. It should follow what the private sector is doing, keeping in mind what our domestic capacity is, what our trading partners are already doing, and, and what our opportunities are on, on the go forward. So, so there's that. But one of the challenges that canada has of course is its our legacy commitments to our you know regional dynamics of our canadian economy right and our existing commitments for example to the aerospace sector which is great and a good opportunity and, and it's not something that we should walk away from or throw away or our commitments to the auto sector which is great and wonderful and a, and a good thing and we shouldn't necessarily walk walk away from but the capacity of canada to be aggressive in different parts of the economy given the global marketplace of things is very limited. And the ability of the government of Canada to push and to be a driver of these things is very limited. The the Prime Minister Trudeau and Navdi Baines, my successor as Minister of Industry, you know, tried this with superclusters and sort of Addressing specific things, whether it was pharmaceuticals and and having that as, a, as an emphasis, as a point of emphasis out in British Columbia. I don't frankly think it's had a great deal of results and a great deal of sort of success that we would parallel or that other countries would say, Hey, look what Canada did there. Isn't that something that's really special and really effective as an opportunity? It's true that. COVID because of supply chains, Donald Trump because of his threats to abrogate NAFTA, I think have caused a bit of an awakening about Canada and key industries and our ability to protect ourselves, given the global pressure of things to to ensure that we have core industries, core capacities for our public safety to be secured. But I genuinely, genuinely don't have a lot of confidence that the government can lead these things. The most effective thing that the government can do is to persistently engage with the private sector to ensure that the government is not getting in the way of the private sector doing these things effectively and doing things in a way that will serve the Canadian economy and sustaining our supply chains having binding free trade agreements and binding at global market access to push out Canadian skills talent labor products and services and draw in those those same things into the Canadian economy at times of crisis and in good times uh, I think should be the dominant focus of the government of Canada and you know, having a group of politicians and bureaucrats in Ottawa thinking that they have the capacity to sort of drive these things, I think is, um, is, is, is foolhardy. I think the best thing the government can do is to be a, seen as a, as a partner and an aspirant as an as a engine of getting out of the way of the private sector delivering um, these things and these opportunities to Canadians. You're one click away from getting access to all
0: The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter per diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca thehub.ca. Now back to our program.
1: Let me ask you something else related to your experience in Ottawa. You served as the the minister responsible for the Canadian Space Agency. We've seen in recent years, something of a space renaissance due in large part to private sector developments. what do you think about Canada's role in space exploration? And generally speaking, what is it about space exploration that seems to capture the public's imagination? Well, it's aspirational and
2: inspirational at the same time. You know, Elon Musk has been a a real driver in all of this by you know getting renewable rockets and getting the cost down and and you know and it's it is far more Elon Musk than it is I think um, Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson and their sort of you know unique sort of boutique interests in these things. But I I think that you know that that line from Sam Seaborn of West Wing, right, where which was you know uh, you know human beings we you know Homo sapiens we come out of the cave and we're going to go over that hill, then we're going to cross those plains and we're going to go over those mountains and we're going to cross that ocean, this exploratory reach of what's next, what's next. And Canada genuinely has been a leader, right? From, you know, Commander Hadfield and his leadership of the International Space Station to the, to the 30 meter telescope, to the James Webb Space Telescope. And, and the, the, and the images that are going to come back from the James Webb Space Telescope telling us about the very origins of our planet and, and, and perhaps our species and what that means and, and the cultural impact and the, the opportunities that's going to create for us to sort of imagine the future and what it means. I mean, I, I think we're we going to be really you know, knocked sideways by the, the kind of things that Canada is going to have a hand in as a consequence of our legacy of space development and leadership. And so, you know, from, you know, the, the Canada arm to this, to the International Space Station, to all these new technologies and Canada's leadership in it. This is an area where Canada really should feel proud and engaged because, because we genuinely are leaders in this space. And, and, you know, having kids dreaming and thinking about the future and, and, and what's possible and the scientific discovery that goes into imagining what would it, be like to land on Mars? What would it be like to have uh, a genuine, better understanding of the cosmos and our place in it? Uh, I just think it's a fascinating area of discovery and science, and, and Canada has been a leader and will continue to be. And, and I think we should feel enormous pride about the past and, and enormous ambition about the future.
1: What you outlined is, the, in effect, the aspirational power of the frontier and how the notion of the frontier resonates with people in a kind of innate way. Yet there's a strain of conservatism that's backwards looking and and even skeptical of progress. How do we reconcile within the world of conservatism, the instinct to want to conserve on one hand, and the idea of the frontier on the other hand? How should we think about those tensions within the conservative mind? I mean... Conservatives, free
2: marketeerism and free enterprise and opportunity and growth and that optimistic view of the future and and what is the potential out there, I think, should animate conservatism. You know, I, I think the instinct to become insular and isolated is not really an option for Canada. We don't really have the capacity economically and given the nature of our country to because if, if Canada isolates itself from the world and isn't aspirational and isn't building and growing and taking advantage of our of our global footprint and we become insular as a country, then we very quickly become insular as provinces, then we become very insular as communities, then we be, then all the old cleavages of Canada start getting to re-weaponize in a reverse order. You know, this is a country that, you know, you know, we've struggled since Confederation to hold together. That's why Brian Mulroney, Pierre Trudeau, both, said that the number one job of the Prime Minister of Canada is national unity through from the beginning of Canada you know, our, our cleavages were Anglophones and Francophones and Aboriginal and non-Northerners and Southerners, Protestants and Catholics and, you know, new Canadians and old Canadians and uh, resource sector versus environmentalists. We have all these cleavages in the country that we fight and struggle to overcome with over time. And if Canada is not expanding and growing and pursuing opportunities around the world and drawing in those those opportunities into making Canada healthier and wealthier, that there's no reason to think that the isolationism of Canada from the world would not sort of cascade down into provinces, into regions, and into, into other communities as well, that ultimately will be toxic for Canada's future. So I th- actually think that being optimistic and, and opportunistic about Canada's footprint in the world is not only a good economic policy, it's good social policy, it's good national unity policy as well. Canada alone in the world, we're the only country in the world, the only country in the world that's a member of the Commonwealth and a member of the Francophonie and a member of NAFTA and a member of the TPP and a member of the Canada Europe Free Trade Agreement, also a member of the Five Eyes, also a member of the uh, founding uh, you know founder of the United Nations. Uh, and we are global in reach. We are ethnically diverse in our large cities. And it's all of those things combined together provide Canada with enormous opportunities that we should be enthusiastic about and embracing because it draws in talent. It allows us to have market access into all these parts of the world that is unparalleled. We're the only country in the world to have tariff free market rules based uh, market access to more than 50% of the, of the world's economies. That's profoundly it's a profound advantage for canada and so you know if we start becoming um isolationist in any way about those opportunities we we burn bridges that are not easily reconstructed and we you know i think castigate ourselves into all kinds of bad
1: corners of short-sightedness and as you alluded to that aspirational sense of the frontier is part of conservative dna in canada you know, sir john a mcdonald's vision was a the vision of the frontier and and a an idea of Canada that was bigger and more ambitious. You served as the minister responsible for the CBC. In the modern marketplace for cultural content, is there still a case for a public broadcaster? And if so, what needs to change uh, to, to continue to justify the CBC's place in the broadcasting landscape? I think there can be, but, but I, I don't think we should shy away from conversations about modernizing the CBC.
2: So here, you know, I became Minister of Canadian Heritage in, after the 2008 federal election campaign. And what happened in that campaign? Going into that campaign, the Conservatives, we had won a minority parliament in 2006, 124 seats in a 308-seat house, the weakest minority parliament numerically of any minority government in Canadian history. At the start of the 08 election campaign against a weakened Stefan Dion and a weakened Liberal Party, there was a point free writ where the Conservative Party wasn't just doing well in Quebec. We were number one in Quebec. We had over 35% support in the, across the entirety of the province. And we were on a pace to win anywhere between 20 and up to 40 out of 75 seats in the province. Like We were humming along and doing extraordinarily well under Prime Minister Harper. And then the entire bottom fell out of it going into the, going into election day in 2008 because cultural files and arts and culture, for the first time in my lifetime, became a dominant issue in the election campaign. We were still reelected. We went up to 146 seats, I believe it was, or 143 seats from, from 124, but we were held to a minority parliament principally because we lost our support in the province of Quebec that we were hoping to, to leverage into a majority going into 2008. I become minister of Canadian heritage. And Stephen Harper says, congratulations, you've done a good job so far, you know, previously in a cabinet post, in you know, a parliamentary secretary, no good deed goes unpunished, and I'd like you to become Minister of Canadian Heritage and Official Languages. Okay, great. So we realized through the searing experience of the 2008 election campaign, that arts and culture is not just sort of a side project. It's actually fundamental to national unity, Canadian identity, Canadians being able to tell stories to one another, you know, inspiriting cities. It's not an accident that that the most successful economic cities around the world are also cities that have a strong and vibrant cultural sector, quality of life, people being able to live and work and play and, and have an inspirited community is part of economic development and quality of life, which is what... Government should always be about, which is improving quality of life for your citizens. So, within that context, arts and culture, CBC, and all that, all comes into the conversation. So, you know, for for just over a billion dollars, the federal government this year is going to spend. I think four hundred sixty billion dollars. memory serves or we're going to go down to about three hundred sixty, assuming that all the, the the COVID COVID spending sort of retreats. So, on a three hundred sixty billion dollar per year spend, you got one point five billion dollars that constitutes the CBC. The CBC for a lot of Canadians, again, not people who habitually vote conservative, but particularly for Francophone Canadians, Francophones who live outside the province of Quebec, they broadcast nine Aboriginal languages and all throughout the north. The, you know, We talk about market failure in news and media. There is absolutely market failure in news and media when it comes to minority communities outside of the province of Quebec and we're talking about Francophone communities and Indigenous languages as well. So, you know, for, for the cost of that, you know, there's a there's a hell of a political price to pay for getting rid of the largest and highest profile crown corporation in the country. So in 2011, when we formed a majority government, I was still the heritage minister. One third of the cabinet were new ministers and new jobs. One third were old ministers and old jobs. And one third were uh, old ministers and new jobs. You get that right. But new people and new jobs. Old people in new jobs, old people in old jobs. I was old people in old jobs. I still I stayed on as Minister of Heritage. And I remember saying to Prime Minister Harper after the campaign, I said, you know. I think I've, I've built a good relationship with Canada's cultural communities. We need to do something, I think, for the, C- with regard to have something to say about the CBC. We were elected back in 2006. It's now 2011. We've got a majority for the next four years or so. And for effectively a decade, you'll be prime minister of the country. And we haven't done anything really substantively with Canada's largest and highest profile crown corporation. And our base is getting itchy about it. At that time in 2011, Sun TV was in full march and, and so on. And they were, you know, clamoring for, for the Harper government to do something about the CBC. And I remember asking Stephen Harper, like, like, what is it that you want to do? And he remembered back in 2008 and what had happened. And he just said, as annoying as the CBC might be from time to time, and as frustrating as we are sometimes the news coverage and some of their personalities, the, the pain that you get from tearing away this cultural institution and what it means is just not worth is not worth frankly the hassle we will cut them and we will force them to be economically more efficient so we took cbc from seven unions down to four we gave them a haircut of I think it was over 20% ultimately, not just the 10% that most, most institutions got. So we forced them to be far more economically responsible than, than they had been before. But, but that was effectively a decision that was made. So now casting, so now it's 2022. We're 10 years removed from that. And going forward, I don't think Canada, I don't think we should be shy. I think it was a mistake for us back in 2011 at the start of a majority government to avoid the conversation of of the crown, of the CBC and a crown corporation and not be prepared to have some kind of conversation about modernizing the CBC. Should we have it? If the answer is yes, then what should its mandate be? And what are we prepared to pay for it? I think the liberals, I think, missed their moment as well in 2015. They got a majority and they had more political room to play with in terms of expectations of cultural communities to do something with the CBC. But they'd rather just throw more money at it and sort of keep it going. So so now we've literally gone a generation since we've actually had a conversation about our public broadcaster and what it is that we want it to do, whether or not we want it to exist, and how much we're prepared to pay for it. So so I, I, think, it's, I think we're overdue for the conversation and i think there are a lot of different directions that we could go you know it doesn't make sense to me for them to be engaged in a lot of things that they're engaged in you know children's programming is important but i don't think there's an there's an inadequate uh, source of children's programming in the private sector why does that have to be government funded you know cbc comedy i think there's plenty of comedy out there i don't think there's a uniqueness to canadian comedy that requires state funding i think canadian comedians do extraordinarily well in the private sector we have the largest public, you know, comedy festival in the world is Just for last Festival. And, you know, some of the best-selling comedians in the world and comic writers and Hollywood actors and performers are Canadians. And so, like, I, I think, you know, a reassessment of its mandate and how much we're prepared to spend for it in a digital age, I don't think we should be afraid of that. And I, I don't think conservatives should be as afraid in 2022 as we were in 2008 and we were in 2011. And, and I think we should go
1: forward cautiously with the conversation, but I don't think we should be afraid of it. Another issue for which balance can be hard to achieve is the country's relationship with China. You know, there's been talk of of something of a a new Cold War between uh, China and the West. There's also a lot of questions about China's behavior in the context of the pandemic. You were the minister responsible for the Asia-Pacific Gateway. How should Canada think about its relationship with China moving forward? I have sort of two
2: answers on this. One is a great opportunity. But also, great caution at the same time, and I think both of those things have to have to be very much in the mindset of of our approach to China like China is our second largest trading partner, but it's a far far less significant obviously trading partner than we have with the United States. They are a tremendous opportunity for us economically going forward. But I, I don't think we should be under any illusions about the, the, the risks of China and what China's aspirations are, and frankly, how they strategically view Canada within the global space, right? Whether it's the conversation about Huawei and 5G and, and sort of getting a strategic partner, put it that way, within, within the context of Five Eyes and what they think that means for them. In Canada, I think we need to be very, very cautious about China on a, on a go-forward basis. Politically, it's challenging as has now been sort of discovered about the pre- most recent election campaigns and about the approach to China, you know, China is a nation state for most, uh, I think most people in the Chinese community see that relationship that way. And so to be anti- it's hard to be anti-China without being seen to be anti-Chinese. If you're seen to be anti-Chinese, that creates free great political problems, I think, in, in huge parts of this country politically. But I think the imprisonment of the two Michaels, I think, was a genuine reset for the Canada-China relationship. And if you look at the uh, antagonism that most Canadians now have towards the, the Chinese regime and their approach to things, including you know whether it's Uyghurs, access to free media, the uh, engagements in Hong Kong, the threats to Taiwan, and the, and the encroachments in the South China Sea, I think the world, and increasingly Canadians who have been kind of dispassionate about China, are People are increasingly being more aggravated and more suspicious about China, what its ultimate goals are. Uh, and, you know, we used to say, it used to be said, rather, about Afghanistan that we use clocks to tell time and they use calendars. I think that's more true of China than any other country in the world in terms of their aspirations over the long haul. And I think when you look at the real estate bubble in China... You look at the economic instability and certainly the, the slow growth from, you know, 7% growth down to half that now and the kind of tensions that are going to continue to be expressed within China. And therefore what the Chinese government will need to do to try to offset that and, and to try to create a new perception of strength for China around the world. And in, in order to placate domestic anxieties, I think it's, um, the world should look to China with a great deal of skepticism and caution.
1: Let's wrap up with a final question that goes back to something you said at the outset. You remain the youngest cabinet minister and member of parliament in BC's history. I note that conservative politics are going through something of another generational change these days. What do you think the importance is of a kind of infusion of uh, youthful perspectives into Canadian conservative politics and what might the consequences be? Oh well, I think it's I think it's fundamental, right? I mean, when I was first elected, the average age of a member of parliament
2: was fifty-seven. I was twenty-four. I'm forty-five now, but yeah, but youthful engagement in the party is is really important and in, in, into conservatism as well. Conservatism has been knocked sideways now for I would say almost ten years, right? You know, Stephen Harper created the conservative party and the habits, the values, the mores, dispositions, the dialogue within the party was shaped by the strong leader who controlled the party and led the party so, so successfully for so long. And then the Republican party, you know, which was defined in the Cold War era as the party of international engagement, either confronting the Soviet empire and pushing democracy or confronting international terrorism with, with militaristic you know, engagements in in Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere it, as a way of sort of cementing global calm in the face of international terrorism, and then a lot of Americans sort of saw the collapse of of the economy in two thousand in the third quarter of two thousand eight, going into two thousand nine. They say, "Wait a minute." It's like all of this international engagement hasn't really meant a lot for me in terms of my personal well-being. Wages for the middle class have been stagnant now for going on 20 years. Uh, A buddy of mine lost his leg in Afghanistan and, you know, he's not being treated well by the federal government. All these speeches about the importance of democracy and terrorism around the world. I don't see great benefits with globalization for me economically. I don't see real great benefits for me in terms of our engagements militarily around the world. And all of that combined created this stew and this energy that resulted in Donald Trump and his form of populism. So, you know, effectively from the end of the Cold War for the George W. Bush era, the rise of Donald Trump, we've now had effectively a decade. So Stephen Harper comes and he builds the Conservative Coalition, then he leaves and the Conservative Party is looking for a sense of identity and focus. In the United States, the Conservative movement... Loses its sense of identity because of the collapse in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and the the misadventures in particularly in, in Iraq, and the conservative movement sort of loses its bearings and it finds its way to Donald Trump and is still soul searching in terms of its focus and identity. So North American conservatism is absolutely, in my view, adrift right now because we've had a decade now of strong leadership under Stephen Harper that's come and gone. We've now had over twenty people who have offered themselves to be leaders of the Conservative Party of Canada, and the the party is still looking for a focused agenda and a focused personality to rally around, to give it a sense of purpose and a North Star to drive towards in an optimistic way. And the Republican Party now in a post-Trump era is, or maybe not post-Trump era, but in a post-16 to 20 Trump era is trying to find its purpose and its its direction for things. And it's, so, so I think that youth providing that energy and that focus for sort of the next generation of conversation, so we can sort of put Iraq put the 0809 recession behind us, put the the challenges of the 2015 election campaign and the Stephen Harper uh, era behind them and start thinking about a conservatism for 2030 for what Brian Mulroney talks about, the Canada of 75 million people. What will that Canada look like? How will we organize and be prepared for that? I think young people uniquely have a perspective on these things that people who have been involved in the old battles don't have. And I think that it's really important for young people to be engaged in politics and to do so with a sense of perspective that I think has been missing by too many of the contemporary actors
1: in North American conservative politics. Well, James, that's just a ton of insight on some of the big questions facing conservatism as well as domestic and foreign policy. James Moore, I want to thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues today. Thanks so much. Pleasure's mine. Thank you for
0: listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's executive director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening.